All right. Well, why don't we start just by reviewing? Uh, I'm going to continue a uh, two part message that I started 1st of September. So I'm going to give you a quiz here. And see what see what you remember. We talked about what someone would answer if they ask you, what is your relationship with God? How would you describe it? I'm actually looking for a specific answer that Paul gave. Anyone? Servant or slave. Yeah, that's right. Sounds like four or five of you remember that. So we just talked about being a servant of God. We talked about how whenever you ask someone, what's their relationship with God? Are you right with God? Do you know God? Would it shock you if somebody said, yeah, I'm God's slave? That's how I'd describe it. I'm the slave of God. Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm God's slave. That's what Paul said, right? At the beginning of Titus and other places. Paul, a slave of God, a servant of God. And so we just asked ourselves, do I believe that? And is it real in my life? We talked about how a slave belongs to another. We belong to God. If we're God's servant, we really do belong to God. We talked about how the slave does the will of another. Slaves doing God's will. The slave of God is doing God's will, not their own will. It's not what I want. It's what my master wants. The slave of God or any slave lives for the approval of another. Right? We talked about there's a slave out in a field and they're plowing the field. Somebody walks by and says, you do not know what you're doing. You're doing it all wrong. This is the worst field I've ever seen. And the master comes up and says, that's exactly how I want him to do it. It doesn't matter what somebody else thought. It's for the master, right? And that's how we are with God. We're not living for the approval of all those around us. We're not living for the approval of a certain person other than God. And we talked about how a slave receives provision and protection from another. And if we're slaves of God, we're looking to God to provide and protect us. Just like Job. We talked about how Job uh, was in the land of Uz. Is that right? Okay. Um, the land of Uz and he could only be touched by the devil just as far as God would let him go. That's what the devil said. Remember at the beginning of Job, you've put a hedge about your servant. No wonder he serves you. You've put a hedge about him. That's what God does. God provides and protects for those who serve him, those who are his servants. So today we're going to consider again the servant of God. We're going to do it a little different. I'm going to try something a little bit different, which is I'm not going to preach uh, expositionally. I'm not going to pick a text and talk about it. I'm going to try and zoom out. You know, sometimes we look at something with a magnifying glass, like here, let's look at this one text. We're going to zoom right in. What does this specific thing say? And we do that a lot. I find myself doing a lot with 
individuals. Like, what does this say about me, my life, today, tomorrow, this week? And really focus in on one specific thing. And I want to try and do something totally different, which is zoom out and get like a 20,000 foot view of this topic. Zoom all the way out. Get a, get a totally different view, not on a specific text, but the whole biblical narrative. A bird's eye view. And if there's anybody here who's really big into like expositional through the book, Stephen does this in his sermon in Acts 7, so it's biblical. He, he, just, he doesn't pick one verse. He goes big, and he just does the whole thing. And so it's, it's not one verse, but it is biblical. So that's what we're going to try and do today is get this bird's eye view, 20,000 foot view of what the Bible says about servants and God. So let's start at Genesis, right at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. And there's going to be a lot of flipping through pages, and you can listen or you can turn, it's up to you. But for sake of time, I am going to go pretty quick, just so you're aware of that. Genesis 1 and verse 28. This is the beginning, and very beginning of the Bible, God had just created, and this is what he says to man. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is God calling Adam to here? To be his servant. I'm giving you authority and here I've got something for you to do. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to subdue it. I want you to have dominion over it. He's giving him a mission. Later on he calls him to name the animals. God has a task and he gives it to his servant, Adam and Eve. But what happens? We see man is God's servant. And then we see, so that's the first act, okay? Man is God's servant. Act two, man rejects serving God. Remember what happens in the garden? Adam and Eve are commanded, do this and don't do this. Fill the earth, subdue it, eat all the fruit you want of any of the trees except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man rejects serving God. God said, do this. God said, don't do this. I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. God, I don't want to be God's servant. I want to be my own man. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to live for the will of another. I want to do my own will. I'm not living to please God anymore, or I wouldn't be doing this. I'm living for myself. I'm rejecting God as my master. You see how that's what Adam and Eve did there? They rejected being servants of God. So that's Act 2. Act 3. Now this is, this is mind-blowing to me. Just think about this. What's going to happen? There's a servant. The master gives them a task, gives them instructions, and they say no. What does the master do to that servant? Remember, Jesus t- says this in parables. And he asked the Pharisees, you know, there's 
he, he gives it in terms of a vineyard. There's a vineyard, and they're not doing what the master asked. The master comes, sends a messenger, they beat the messenger, sends his son, they kill the son. What is the master going to do to those servants? It's obvious, isn't it? But it's not what God does. This is unreal. Look at Genesis 3 here. Genesis 3.21 And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Man is God's servant. Man rejects being a servant of God. And God serves man. He serves the one who wouldn't serve Him. Think about it. The God of the universe comes to His servants. What is He, what is he doing here? He's not coming to receive service. They've rejected that. In fact, they can't do it anymore. He's got to kick them out of the garden. You can't serve me in the garden anymore. I can't trust you. You might eat the fruit of... Uh, the tree of life and so I've got to kick you out of where I wanted you to be out of this service what is he going to do he serves them he makes them garments to clothe them unreal I mean I never thought of this the only reason just like John was talking about this morning the only reason I even thought in these terms was because of Jesus I could only for me I could only see this in hindsight Think about the verse from Jesus. I came not to be served, but to serve. Isn't that true in this specific situation in the garden? God's coming to Adam and Eve. Is he expecting them to serve him? No. He knows they've rejected. They're not fit to serve him. What is he coming to do for them? To serve them. To promise a seed that will come and crush the head of the serpent. To make for them garments. Did they deserve it? No. They deserve the opposite. They deserved death, right? He could have killed them there. And it would have been right and just, but he didn't. So that's part three. God serves man. And then the last part of the story is that man is restored to service or to be a servant. And that's the end of the book, right? That that doesn't happen right here, right yet. Definitely not fully. But these four parts of the story are repeated over and over and over and over and over, right? And we're just going to fly through it. But think about, just even in Genesis, we get to Genesis 6, and it says that everyone on the earth was doing all these wicked things. They weren't serving God. What does God do? God raises up Noah and rescues. Rescues man. He he serves God, Noah. And in that, God is rescuing man. God is serving man. He's making the world new. Think about Exodus. 
It's a little bit different. It's a nation. But we could say it with Israel instead of man. Israel is supposed to be God's servant. Israel rejects serving God. God rescues Israel. God serves Israel. And Israel is restored to service. That's the story, right? And that's not only in Exodus. That's the whole Old Testament over and over and over and over. And the same story repeated over and over with different players, with different actors, but the same story of man as God's servant, man rejecting God's service, God rescuing and serving man, and and man being restored as a servant. It's, it's amazing. How does God serve them in Exodus? Well, they're slaves, right? He has to come in and free them. For them to be able to be a servant of God, He has to come and do something for them, right? What does He have to do? He has to bring them out of Egypt. Why? Well, Moses tells Pharaoh, so that my people can serve me. Right? That's the purpose. God comes in to do something in man's life that he couldn't do for himself to pull him out and to restore him to being his servant. And we see this repeated again in terms of Israel. Israel gets a nation of physical land and for a while they serve God, but remember what happens? They forget. And they start serving the idols. They reject God as their master. They reject serving God. What does God do? Let's look here real quick. I'm going to read you some verses from Judges chapter 3. It just gives you a feel. Judges chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the ball, the ball, and the Astaroth. They start serving idols. So we see this second act. They reject serving God. And then what happens? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is verse 8. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathiam. Totally a guess on my part. King of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathiam eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. The rejected servants cry out to the one they should have been serving for help. Come, help me, serve me. And he does. And he raises up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And then the same thing is repeated just again in verse 12. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon and the king of Moab 18 years. Then the people cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up for them and delivered Ehud. So, repeated, repeated, over and over and over. 
We see Israel taken captive. There's a warning from a prophet, serve God, don't serve, don't serve the, uh, uh, sorry, lost my train of thought. <laughs> serve God, don't serve idols, and what happens? They do, they're rejected, Assyria comes in, takes captive Israel, what has to happen? God has to rescue them, bring them back. The ones that should have been serving God, He has to come in, serve them. So that what? So that they can be restored to service and brought back to Israel. Exact same thing happens with Judah, except it's Babylon. Same story repeated. And God raises up Ezra to serve them. God, the good hand of God was upon him to bring them back, to restore them, to be servants again. And so it's repeated over and over. But we have to come to the climax, right? What's the main thing uh, that this is really talking about? Well, it's the New Testament. It's Jesus. Look at Philippians 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 6. Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So here we see God coming to serve man, coming to serve the servant that wouldn't serve him so that they could be a servant again. The ultimate fulfillment. The real exodus, right? The real freedom. The real promised land is where he's taking us. And what's going to be the service? It's going to be forever. It's not going to be this cycle of serving, falling, having to be brought back. It's going to be forever. It's going to be eternity. Now here's the problem. If I could say something over and over and over and that would make it real in your heart, I would. But I can't. And the fact is that I think, I hope, 95% of the people in here understand what I'm saying. And you could maybe even repeat the four phases back to me. But that doesn't mean it hits your heart the way it ought to. That my hope and prayer for you is that you would marvel again, or maybe for the first time, that God would serve you. You see the big picture, but let's 
let's try and feel the reality now. We see the overarching big picture. What happens at the end of the book? We started in Genesis. And what happens at the end? No longer, this is the last chapter in the Bible, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will serve Him, or worship Him, same word. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. So we see the big picture. It starts in Genesis. It goes, man falls. What happens? Jesus has to come and serve the servants that rejected Him to restore them to service. And that's the big picture of the Bible, but we see it over and over in little pictures um, all the way through. And even in the New Testament, we see little pictures. Isn't Paul's life just another repetition of this big story? It is. But I want us to feel it. Not just to know it, but to feel it, to marvel, to worship, to, to have tears of joy and thankfulness to God. And so let's look at Jesus' words here in Luke 17. I would like you to turn here because we're going to just really try and soak this in. What are we saying? What are we really saying here? Yes, Luke 17, 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, recline at table? Will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What do, how does a master treat a servant? The servant comes in from plowing in the field. He doesn't say, take off your shoes, sit down. I'm going to go ahead and start serving you. He says, Fix my meal. He expects service. The servant does not expect the master to serve him or thank him. He just did his duty. Now, we aren't perfect servants. We haven't done our duty, right? We all have, like Adam, decided, here's what God says. I'm going to choose either to serve him or I'm going to choose to do my own will not to do his will but do to do my will not to please him but to please myself i'm going to be my own master so how should the master treat us if the master wouldn't get down and serve us when we were perfect servants when we did all that we were asked why would the master get down now when we're rejecting servants when we've rejected his service It's the last thing you'd expect. Yes. There's a slave. There's, there's a slave who decides, I don't want to work the fields in, anymore. This is beneath me. I'm going to run away. 
And he goes off. He runs, he runs away from his master and he gets caught. And he's brought back. What's that slave going to expect? He is not going to expect to see the master next to this slave's little hut and the slave's little garden and the, and the master's working in the slave's garden. And the master does for the slave what he wouldn't do for the master. Uh, you, wouldn't work, you wouldn't work my fields, but while you were gone, I was tending your garden. So when you came back, you'd have food to eat. That is not what we'd expect. The slave or the servant says, I don't want to cook your dinner. Cook your own dinner. What does the master do? He doesn't put on the apron and cook that servant dinner. That's not expected. I'm not going to cook for you. I reject, I reject you as my master. We do not expect the master to say, well, why don't I, why don't I fix, your, fix you a meal? And if that's true, if that's shocking, if that's surprising, how much more God? I mean, He's God. It's infinitely higher. For Him to serve us, He doesn't, he doesn't just do what we refuse to do. He has to actually just humble Himself to be, take on the form of a servant. To become a man even so He could come and wash our feet and serve us. Imagine it in your own life. I mean, has God ever asked you to do something and you refused to do it? What would you have felt if God came down and did it? Humbled to the dust, right? Maybe it's your kids. Maybe you know, God said in your heart to you, you, you need to show tender compassion right now on your kids. You could be harsh. You could punish them, but I want you to show grace. And you and your heart are like, no, they really need to feel this one, and I'm going to rebuke them sharply. And then God walks through the door, and he gets down on his knees, and he's tender with your kid. That, that would be unreal. You see somebody on the street, you're walking by, there's a guy with a sign, and you think, you feel God. You know what, you need to just, you need to at least give them some food. You don't have to give them any money, but give them some food, and you don't. And then God comes and does it. I mean, if you turned around and you saw Jesus Christ doing the thing you wouldn't do, that would be unreal. I mean, that would strike your heart. But what about us? When we see Jesus Christ, I mean, let's turn here to John 13. Just a, a specific example, a specific example of this larger picture. John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments, taking a towel, 
tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Let's stop right there. Here it is. Here's the story again, isn't it? God appoints man as his servant. Man has rejected serving God. What's God's response? He comes in the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gets down on his knees. He takes off his outer garment, puts on the slave's garment, towel, wraps it around his waist and washes their feet. I hope that this is hitting your heart. I mean, this is Jesus. This is the one we didn't serve, coming to serve us. We rejected. We said no. And he came to do it. He should have come into the world. We should have all served him. We should have all, we should have all washed his feet, every one of us. We should have been ministering to him, but we, we couldn't. Why? We had already rejected his service. We said, we're not going to serve you. So what does he come? He comes and he serves the ones who would not serve him. Over and over and over and over throughout the whole Gospels. Repeatedly. If it's shocking to see Jesus take off his outer garment and put on a towel, how much more if we could have seen Jesus Christ with God in heaven take off the glory and become a baby, a man? It's just a parable. It's just, this is a, this is a parable. If we could see the reality, we would worship. We would be thankful. So this is the big story, right? Do you see it? Can you see what I'm saying? Do you see it in the Bible? Do you see it in your life? Do you see it in the life of Jesus fulfilled? Do you see? It's the story of history. We started out servants. We lost it. God came to serve us. But one day we're going to be servants again. Forever. In heaven. In the new earth. So let's zoom back in. We've been zoomed out, big picture, but let's talk about us now. What is this? What can we learn from this? Why? What's the purpose of all this? It's kind of, in some ways, tedious and repetitious. What's the purpose? Well, first thing we can see is that our service is made possible by Christ's service. We could not be servants without Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to Peter, unless I wash your feet, unless I humble myself and become your servant, you're not going to be clean. And that's us. We, the only way you and I can be servants of God is because Jesus served us. 
That's the only way. If he didn't, if he didn't get his hands nailed to a cross and his feet nailed to a cross when we should have been the ones there then we couldn't be God's servants there would be no hope we could never be restored the story would be man was God's servant man rejected God's service and that's it that's the end of the story without God coming to serve us we would always be in Egypt we would never get out But Jesus came to serve us so we could be servants again. Our service is made possible by Christ's service. We should never get to the place where we forget and where we start to think we're more than unworthy servants. Right? That's what the the passage in Luke 17 was saying. We've got to have this mindset. That's what Philippians was saying. We've got to have this mindset. I'm a servant. I'm an unworthy servant. a sense of humility. We're only here. We're only servants because of what Jesus did. What else? Our service is not only made possible by Christ's service, our service is motivated by Christ's service. We see what He did. Look at Jesus. Look how He came and He served those who wouldn't, who wouldn't serve Him. Now what do we do? It's just what Jesus said and at the end of John 13. If I, your Master... You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. But if I served you, what should you do? He says, go and do likewise. If I wash your feet, I want you to wash one another's feet. Our service is motivated by Christ's service. If we can see this and marvel that God would serve us, that the master we said, I'm not going to serve you, he came and served us, we're going to want to serve it's not going to be wake up in the morning and say, ah, what do, I, what, do, what do I want to do today? Oh, but maybe I should do what God wants. No, it's going to be Jesus Christ gave his life for me who did not deserve it. I didn't deserve to be served by God, and he did. I want to serve him. I want to be like him. Our service is motivated by Christ's service. We want to be like Christ. We want to be servants of God. We want to serve Him the way He served us. We want to serve others the way He served us. And what else? Our service is patterned after Christ's service. So it motivates us. We see, wow, thank you, God, for what you did. Now I want, in return, I want to live, I want to give my life for you. I want to serve you how you serve me. Yes, it's motivated, but it's also patterned. We see it as This is what Jesus did. I want to do what Jesus did. How did Jesus serve others? I want to do just like that. We're thankful, we're grateful, and we're imitators of of Christ. Well, I guess the danger with this kind of sermon is it's so much. It's like a fire hydrant, you know. We just went from Genesis to Revelation. We saw the big picture in one way, it's too much really to take in all at once. But let's try and zoom in a little bit further just to us now, today. So we see the big picture. We see the history's pattern, past, present, and future. What about us? 
Part of this is related to a question someone asked me after the first message on servanthood. They said, well, what, what do we do when we fall short? What do we do when we feel like we're not being a good servant? Here's what we do. We lean on Christ's service for us. My, me being a servant of God is not based on how good I'm doing today. It's based on Christ's perfect service of me. He came. He died on the cross. He lived the life that I should have lived but didn't live on my behalf. I'm not leaning on my own value as a servant. I'm an unworthy servant. I'm leaning on Christ's perfect servanthood. That's one. What else? So I see that I'm falling short. I see that I'm not a servant like I want to be. We lean on His service. It's not based on our service. But we're motivated by His service. We fall short. We come to Him. We ask Him, just like they did in the Old Testament, God, you're going to have to come serve me. Look, I didn't serve you here. I didn't do it rightly. Would you come in and be my servant again and help make this right? Would you... Come in and wash me by your blood once again. Would you come and help me? We lean on his service again. And it motivates us. I was talking to a person on campus, Catholic. You know, they they believe that you can never know you're going to go to heaven uh, for sure. Because it's motivated by works. And so if you commit a mortal sin, if you commit a bad sin and you don't confess it, you could go to hell whether you're a, quote, Christian or not, according to Roman Catholicism. And so I talked to them. I was like, you know what? You're missing out. There's something that's so precious that I get to experience that you'll never experience. And that is when I mess up and I go to God, I can weep tears of joy that I'm still accepted. And you can't because you believe you aren't. You have to get better. You have to do better. There's no assurance in, ter- in, in times of failure for you. There's only fear. And that's sad. But we don't have that, right? We have a Savior who's willing to come in and serve us when we don't serve Him. And we rest on that. And what? That motivates you all the more, doesn't it? I mean... You come to God and you pour out, God, I'm really messed up here. This is what I did. Forgive me. Come and help me. Would you repair these things? And he does. You want to serve him. Not to earn anything back. Not to make anything uh, in terms of merits. Because he just came and served you. Because you want to be like him. Because you're grateful for what he did. So what's, what's the purpose of all this? My prayer for you is that some of you would just marvel at Jesus, that he would serve you. Jesus served me. I didn't deserve it. Pray that it would motivate you to be a servant. You would want to be a servant because you see what God did. The fact that God came to serve us is un, unbelievable. We couldn't have made it up. We never would have expected it. And we want to be like him.
Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much. We couldn't, we can't say what we want to say. We know we even on our clearest days, we don't see how good you've been to us. But we want to thank you for what we do see and we say thank you. Thank you for coming and dying. Thank you for serving us when we didn't want to serve you. Would you please help us going forward? Would you please help us? We want to we want to be like you. We want to be servants just like you were. We need help though. We need you to come in daily and serve us and wash us. We hand uh, this week over to you, Lord. You're a good God. We trust you with whatever you have for us. Amen.